Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy to digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Now, this is a little strange for me because I usually do the Dr. Raj podcast. It's all about wellness and happiness and great stories that make you feel nice and warm inside. But this is my super dorky medical podcast, which I'm so pumped up for. And of course, it is called Beyond the Pearls. And I make this hand signal that you can't see, but trust me, I'm making this passionate hand signal. Now, why am I so excited today is because of the fact that, hey, my new book is coming out and I'm just so excited. It took, it took mean years to finish this one because of the pandemic and you know i'm so happy of all the volume editors i worked with all the contributors and i thought it'd be a great idea to do some promos on the beyond the pearls podcast so we're going to go over some chapters from the book i think we're going to do a four-part series and this is going to be part one now i was thinking to myself should i just babble to myself and no one listen to me or should i have a guest who's kind of like the target audience of this book. So, you know, I have a wonderful, soon to be, if not graduated already, fourth year medical student that I was talking to before recording this. She's just awesome and smart. She wants to go into internal medicine and she does a lot of this media stuff like I do. So it's going to be a good fit. So this is going to be Eva Kondacker, but we're going to call her doctor pretty soon. So we might as well get used to saying that. Anyways, Eva, how are you doing today? Oh, Dr. Raj, I am so, so grateful to be here with you today um, going over your book. I'm so, so excited to, uh, you know, be part of this, uh, you know, journey with you. I love your book, by the way. So thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to learn with you. Oh, I love it. And for everyone listening, I did not pay her to say that, okay? <laughs> um, so here's how we're going to do this. I'm just going to read the opening uh, case. And what is this book, everyone? It's kind of like a book of awesome cases that you're going to get throughout your internal medicine residency, things you're going to see during med school, during your internal medicine rotations. And the title of the book is called Medicine Morning Report, Subspecialties Beyond the Pearls. And this is case number 63. And I'm going to read the opening case and I'm going to let uh, Eva just kind of go to town with what questions do you have about this case. So this is a 64-year-old woman with a history of hypertension, diabetes, and chronic kidney disease. She's like stage three. She comes to the emergency department with three days of some fevers, chills, lethargy, and dysuria. Family members are mentioning that she's having nausea and vomiting for the last few days. You know, on the day of admission, she is confused. Um, the family denies any changes to her medication. She hasn't traveled recently. And they mentioned, you know what, they haven't noticed a headache. The patient hasn't complained of a headache. 
there was no shortness of breath or calm. There was no neck pain, at least on their uh, evaluation, you know, of the patient. And on exam, patient was febrile and the blood pressure was low. I mean, I'm talking like in the systolics in the 90s when they were measuring the vital signs. She was tachycardic around 120. She was tachypnic around 24, but her oxygen saturations was 96% on room air. She's alert and oriented to person and place, but not time. Her cardiopulmonary exam was within normal limits. There was no abdominal pain. However, patient had some costovertigal angle tenderness, some CVA tenderness. And the rest of her exam was unremarkable. They got some imaging, like a routine chest x-ray, which was unremarkable. And they got a UA, and it was positive for nitrates and leukocytesterase. There was some WBCs in that urine, quite a bit of WBCs in the urine. And from there, it kind of leads into the questions about the book. The book is all about what is the most likely diagnosis? What is the best first initial test? What is the initial treatment? And of course, what are we trying to do is combine basic science, clinical pearls. And with that being said, I'm going to turn the mic over to Eva. How did you like the opening case and grill me? What questions do you have about it? Oh, Dr. Raj, I have a lot of questions to ask you. Um, you know, one of the things that I did do is use your book when I was studying for my um, board exams, and it was immensely helpful. So I do have a lot of questions for you on this case. Sepsis is a very commonly tested concept or just, you know, overall, something that we obviously have to understand thoroughly uh, for any um, any board exams. So I, I do have a lot of questions about this case. First of all, okay, so you know, you had mentioned that this patient, uh, the 64 year old female that came in, she has had three days of subjective fever, chills, lethargy, and dysuria. Now, when it's when when this vignette is written, it's written with a numerical value. They haven't written it out as three days, you know, just written out. It's with that number three days. Is this something that we should be honing in on when we're reading these vignettes? You know, I would say yes, not only for taking a board exam, but in general, because I think that what we're trying to hint at is kind of these broad definitions of acute, subacute, and chronic. And I think the limiting thing is always going to be subjective, you know, and that's why I kind of wrote that, hey, it's subjective because when you talk to the patient, I mean, did they actually put the thermometer in their mouth? Did they actually measure it out at home? Or did they feel like, hey, I felt a little warm than usual? So I think it's important to know when did they objectively started having fevers? Of course, that starts the minute they're in the emergency department, when they're in the hospital. But I can tell you one thing. If someone's having fevers for months, you know, I kind of start moving away from infectious causes because that's kind of mean, let's let someone have a fever for that long you probably think about you know non-infectious causes and trust me there's, there's quite a bit and a lot of those deal with many rheumatological diseases you know but if you're having the acute onset of fevers spiking fevers periodic fevers that occurred over the last couple of days you wonder that is this an acute infectious maybe bacterial ideology not to say that other types of infections can't do it, but that's why you need the history, the physical risk factors. But yes, I think the acuity of what's going on tells me three days, something must have been the trigger. What could it be? So I think it is important that you look at duration of time. Okay, great. Thank you so much for answering that. 
you know, another thing that you had already mentioned there, the word subjective. So a lot of students, when they're reading through the vignette, they do tend to miss that. Like you had mentioned, this is not an objective uh, way of uh, stating that this person has fever. This is something the patient is reporting. Am I correct? 100%. Okay, great. Thank you for answering that. Uh, my next question, okay, it's kind of going into uh, this, this sentence here. So, you know, they had mentioned specifically here, um, this patient does not have any uh, headache, shortness of breath, neck pain. What is this sort of pointing towards? Could you kind of create that clinical picture for us? Of course. So, you know, this patient sounds pretty ill, you know, I mean, you come in, you already have diabetes, you're a setup for infections, you have chronic kidney disease, you're not on dialysis yet, and hopefully you'll never go on it, but you're just a setup for infection. You're having fevers, you know, your blood pressure is kind of on the, on the soft side, you're tachycardic. I'm like, I'm, where am I going to begin my search for an acute infectious etiology? Once again, three days of fevers, normal state of health, now doing bad, now having fevers. So the search begins. So, you know, I think that if I was seeing a patient in the clinic, you know, you kind of go through your review of systems. And what does that mean? Start off with the central nervous system, then go to the heart, then go to the lungs, then the GI tract. And we could go all day talking about review of systems. But when you write a vignette such as this one, you gotta, you know, put things that kind of steer the patient or the reader one way to kind of say, this is what might be happening in the patient. So, you know, by saying there's no headache, I always feel there's kind of like these reflexive things out there. You say fever and headache, someone's gonna say meningitis or encephalitis. If someone says fever and a murmur, a new murmur especially, hey, endocarditis, you know? So of course there are certain, you know, buzzwords that we try to think about when we read a vignette or talk to the patient. So. The shortness of breath, definitely trying to say, probably not going to be a pneumonia. Does every pneumonia have to have shortness of breath? I mean, not necessarily. You know what I mean? You'll be surprised about these walking pneumonias that yeah. people could have, you know? Right, so right. I think yeah. these are well-placed things that say, probably not going to be meningitis. And of course, someone will put me on the spot saying, can you have meningitis without a headache? anything is possibly a very atypical presentation, but no neck pain. And of course, you can't in the vignette put no Brodinsky sign, no curtain right. sign. I mean, that'd be too much right off the bat, you know? Yeah. I gotta yeah. leave something out there, you know? But, you know, I, I'm kind of knocking off some of the big organ systems. So, you know, when you get to the end of that opening paragraph and you're like, wait a minute, you got a UA, wait a minute, there's some CVA tenderness. I'm, I'm kind of leading this, you know, on the older side woman with diabetes down a very specific route. And that's going to be, uh-oh, are we talking about some eurosepsis? You know what I'm saying? Exactly. <laughs> you know, that, that, no, you've, uh, you've answered it so well. And that's, I'm, I'm understanding why those pertinents are there and why they take out the things that you should obviously take out for your differentials, right? So um, thank you for that. That was really well explained. Um, now, I have a few more questions. And I think a lot of medical students wonder about this. Why don't we have a, quote, gold standard definition for sepsis? Like, what, How do we even define sepsis? Like, how do you even be begin to define that? 
Well, you know, there's not enough time on this podcast to answer that, but I'm going to do my best. <laughs> I always say now, I love all my subspecialties, and that's why I called the book subspecialties. But sometimes I think, you know, like the cardiologist got it a little easier than me when it comes to defining things. Because, you know, if you were to ask me the Webster's definition of an MI, you know what I mean? Well, it's an infarct of the myocardium. There should be an elevation of troponin. It's something that, you know, it's very tangible. And you're like, okay, this is how you define something. And this is what you look for. You're right. You There's just not a very simple way to diagnose sepsis. There is a definition of it, though, but we don't go around quoting this definition that often. And the sepsis definition, the Webster's Dictionary <laughs> definition would be a dysregulated immune response secondary to a, an infection. And that's really what it comes down to, is that your immune system is in disarray. You're getting the clinical manifestations of the immune system going haywire. And of course, what triggered it is going to be this infection, you know, but I really want to spend some time and kind of talk about there's difference between criteria and there's a difference between, you know, the definition. So right. I really would like to talk about maybe some of these criteria. And I know that we had a quick banter about this before starting the podcast. Yes. Um, did you have questions about Sears and SOFA scores yes. and stuff like that? Yes, I, I do. Actually, you know, previously to this, um, I I have heard of, I mean, we're, we readily study SIRS, you know, we, we've heard of that criteria, but SOFA, not quite so much. So if you could even like kind of give us uh, a bit of a explanation on the differences, when do you use SIRS versus when do you use SOFA? Um, that would be great. <laughs> no, definitely. So once again, definition is kind of like a Webster's dictionary definition. Criteria is kind of used for research. And why are there so many criteria? I mean, there's a Sears criteria. Now, everyone, Sears is not a department store. Sears stands for... <laughs> Sears shut down a long time ago, right? It did, it did, it did. It's S-I-R-S, Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. And SOFA is not something you sit your butt down on. That sounds for sepsis organ function assessment, you know. And why are there so many criteria? Because we're trying to find the right criteria that doesn't underestimate sepsis mortality. It doesn't overestimate sepsis mortality. It estimates mortality just right. And that's the big thing about it. So when we talk about Sears, it's kind of outdated. So I'm glad we're bringing this up. So why is Sears criteria starting to move away a little bit is because, you know, it was overly sensitive. So Sears had four main criteria. The criteria number one was the heart rate. Are you going to be tachycardic? Number two was going to be the respiratory rate. Are you very, very tachypnic? Now, the other two are going to be, hey, do you have some fevers or are you very, very, you know, hypothermic? So both ends of the temperature spectrum. And the last is going to be the WBC count. Is it going to be super high like a leukocytosis or is it super low like a leukopenia? Now, to have Sears, you need to have two of the four criteria. So, Eva, let me let me ask you this question. I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. So, if I made you, like, run around your house or apartment a bunch of times, would you meet the Sears criteria? Uh, 
Uh, at this point, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll speak to myself. If you made me run around this this hospital once or twice, I definitely would have Sears because yeah. I would be tachycardic. I definitely would be tachypnic. Mm-hmm. And you only need two of the four criteria. But trust yeah. me, I'm not septic. You know? Yeah, exactly. So exactly. it was too sensitive, you know? So then when you break it down even further, you know, if you're doing a screening criteria for sepsis, you want to make it nice and quick and simple. Now, if you talk about the WBC count, that means you got to do a, a blood stick. You got to get a venous, you know, a blood draw looking for those WBCs. That takes time. And also when we talk about the respiratory rate, sometimes it's hard to really count your respirations per minute. So you could actually do an arterial blood gas instead of counting the respiratory rate to see if you are hyper or hypocapnic. Now, wait a minute. You're telling me to get the full criteria. I got to do a, a ABG arterial blood gas and a blood draw from the vein just to see if you have sepsis. That doesn't make any sense. But then I just use the two simple ones and everyone has sepsis. So, you know, the serious criteria, once again, was too sensitive. But going down that line in the olden days, you know, what was the definition of sepsis was having a positive serious criteria, which is two out of the four, plus a presumed source of infection. That was the definition of of, in in the olden days of sepsis. You didn't have to have a positive blood culture or a positive UA or an analysis or anything, just a presumed source. So... There was also something in the old criteria of Sears they called severe sepsis. Now, severe sepsis, that term doesn't really sit well anymore because if you call something severe sepsis, it almost implies that there's good sepsis. Right. <laughs> there's no such thing yeah. as good sepsis, so I, I didn't really uh, really buy into that. But in the, in the old severe sepsis thought process, it was having sepsis plus a target organ f- damage you know what i mean mm-hmm. and if you were to ask me in this vignette that we're reading what was a target organ you know damage in this vignette you know what this patient had what mental status changes and that's probably right. one of the most common things we see as a target organ damage because when you're septic trust me your blood pressure is going to be on the lower side you know you're not perfusing the brain there's not enough oxygen delivery to the brain you're gonna get a little mental status changes so already this patient sounds like <laughs> she already has severe sepsis, you know? Right. And what was septic shock? Well, septic shock means you're just getting all the fluid resuscitation. You're still, blood pressure is going to be low. You're probably going to require what we call pressors. Then we're going to probably call that, you know, septic shock. So what do we do? Because Sears was too sensitive. There's something called that SOFA score. So, you know, in the sepsis three guidelines, which we use more commonly now, we just say that, that, you know, what is going to be the criteria to have sepsis is having a SOFA score greater than two. Now, what does that mean? There are six main organs that are in a SOFA score. Now, I wouldn't go around memorizing this is because I'm so dorky. I just know it, you know, but <laughs> it's going to look at things like your lungs. We look at a PF ratio, mm-hmm. P little AO2 you know, over the uh, uh, the FiO2. And if that ratio is going to be super low, there could be some lung damage. We look at the heart. We look at the 
mean arterial pressure, if it's going to be low, we think about there could be cardiovascular damage. We think of the liver, if the bilirubin's up, there could be, you know, liver damage. We look at the bone marrow, if the platelets are going to be, you know, uh, low, there could be some bone marrow damage. We look at the brain and the central nervous system by calculating the Glasgow coma scale, you know, and of yeah. course, the, the kidney looking at urine output and maybe serum creatinine. And, you know, each one of those organ systems has a score from zero to four. And if you just have a score of two, two of all wow. of that, you're going to have, that's how we define sepsis. And, you know, we realized based upon studies that the SOFA score may actually predict mortality a little more accurately than the SEERS, which over really over overestimates it. It's not really a bad right. thing, but now all we have now is we have sepsis and we have septic shock. And we talked about sepsis being defined as a SOFA score greater than two. Then septic shock is basically after IV fluids. If you have a mean arterial pressure less than 65 and you have an elevated lactic acid, we call it septic shock. Now, the last thing I'm going to say is just to make it more confusing for everyone in life, there's something called a Q-SOFA. That's called a quick SOFA, you know, <laughs> and a Q-SOFA is actually a screening because what do we want to do is actually when there are people in the hospital, in the ER, do you need, do you need to go to the ICU? So a Q-SOFA is only going to be three things. It's going to be the Glasgow coma scale. It's going to be the blood pressure and the respiratory rate. And if you have you know, two of the three scores that are going to be abnormal, your tachypnic, your Glasgow coma scale is low, your blood pressure is low, two of those three, hey, you may need to be moved to the medical ICU for evaluation. So I don't know if you got a chance, uh, Eva, in the book, we have a pretty awesome table kind of summarizing these things, but I'm glad you asked that question so we could kind of put into words what the table was showing, you know? For sure, Dr. Raj. And honestly, I have to admit, these tables that you have in the book, they're so easy to follow. It's just kind of bang on, like, you know, here, this is what you need for a SIRS criteria. This is what you need for uh, QSOFA. It's just there. It's so simplified. I absolutely love it. Um, I know you're incredible. You just have like this pot of knowledge inside that brain. Um, I, you know, honestly aspire to be like you one day. So, but, but until then I have your books so, and I have, I have these great tables and charts. Um, honestly, this is an incredible book. I, oh, I, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't even know how else to say it. So um, thank you for these explanations. Like, oh, anytime. I'm having fun with this. Let's, let's keep on going, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know what? I never saw it the way you just explained it. Like when you had asked me, would you right now, if I asked you to run around the house, um, would you kind of qualify for that SERS criteria? Yes, I would. You know, I think we all would. Yep. <laughs> so, so it's incredible that how you simplified and how you made me look at it that way and why the SOFA's criteria is a little bit more accurate. I never thought of it like that. And I, I mean, I could read through any um, book as much as I want, but I really love the way you simplify things. And I kind of, it kind of shows the way you think also in your book. Oh, thank you. So thank you. Thank you for that. (laughs) Um, I do have more questions. Fire away, man. This is our time together. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of students and, you know, I think this is this book is very much tailored to students going through, obviously, step one, step two, step three, any 
point in their life, in their medical career. Anybody can use this book. So let's talk a little bit today about management. I think this is something that everybody kind of struggles with. Like, wonderful. We figured out it was sepsis. But what do we do now? You know, um, what are... Are there some brief steps to management that you want us to think about when we get a case like sepsis? If once we've you know gone through these criteria, we've understood. Okay, now what do we do? Like, what do we do next? Awesome. So number one, I just wanted to mention that sepsis is not defined as being hypotensive. Don't get me wrong. When you're in shock in general. I'm pretty sure your blood pressure will be low. I'm pretty sure your mean arterial pressure is going to be low. But really what defines shock, regardless of etiology, whether it's hypovolemic, cardiogenic, distributive, which sepsis is part of, is impaired tissue perfusion. It's not delivering that oxygen to tissues and tissues not being able to consume the oxygen that's what really defines when you're going to be in shock itself. And I'll tell you, especially in septic shock, that tissues cannot utilize that oxygen, you know. So I just wanted to mention that. And how do we manage sepsis? Well, I think, number one, I mean, you've got to have a low threshold suspected, you know. And we're I had this patient back to the vignette older risk factors, positive urine analysis, some CVA tenderness, low blood pressure, giving IV fluids, and still the blood pressure is not going up. I mean, you're really kind of irking me to pick a septic patient. And the one of the most important things is, you know, source control. Where is the infection? Now, I'll just say this now because, you know, you're asking me, why am I saying no lung, you know, findings on the exam or no per se, you know, intestinal or no meningitis. The whole point is that it's source control. And right. when we think about, you know, the urinary tract or the abdomen, what do you want to do? You, you want to make sure you don't have to drain something. So, of course, if someone comes in with cholecystitis and you're not draining the bile duct, the common bile duct is distended, you got to decompress. If you have an abscess in the abdomen, you may want to take it out. If you have a blockage in a urinary tract, you need to probably drain it, whether it's percutaneously or putting in a stent and getting urology involved. Source source control. So the most important thing is addressing the infection, source control. In lung, we just can't do a lot of source control, right? Because if you have pneumonia, I'm not going to take out your lung. That sounds kind of like a mean thing to do, you know? (laughs) So, but abdomen, complicated intra-abdominal infections, complicated urinary tract infections, acute pyelonephritis, you definitely want to make sure there's nothing to drain or nothing has to go to the OR. So definitely, does neurology need to be involved? Does surgeons need to be involved? If not, of course, the most important thing is choosing the right antibiotics, you know? Now, when I say antibiotics, I'm already going to assume that we're talking about bacteria. Don't get me wrong, whether it's parasite or fungus or virus, all these things can definitely cause sepsis. But, you know, when we're talking about common things being common, you know, this sounds like a bacterial urinary tract infection. It just went out of control. So when we talk about bacteria, this is why we get a gram stain. You know what I mean? Because is it gram positive? It's gram negative. And it's more than just memorizing color, right? Gram positive right, is right. always going to be purple. Gram negative is kind of on the pinkish side. But if you got gram positives, you got to think of things like enterococcus, you know? If it's going to be like, you know, gram negative, uh-oh, gram negative, gram negative raw, gram negative bacillus. You got to think about E. coli, E. coli, E. coli. And then number Which two, is- you got to think about Klebsiella. Number three, you got to think about Pseudomonas. 
you know? So you definitely want to think about what am I going to start? If someone's septic and I don't, you know, the most important thing to do is get your cultures and start antibiotics right away. Broad spectrum to cover what you suspect, then narrow the spectrum as much as possible. If someone's septic and I want to cover those gram positives, I'm going to start broad. It may be vancomycin. Of course, you want to look at the toxicities and how are the organs functioning so you could dose it appropriately. But for gram positives, maybe some vanco first to narrow my spectrum. If it's going to be gram negatives, maybe if I really, they look pretty sick, I may want to pick a gram negative antibiotic that covers pseudomonas and then narrow the spectrum once I know it's something like an E. coli. And of course, when we talk about E. coli, there's something called ESBL, extended spectrum beta lactamases. And maybe I need to pick an antibiotic that covers this because there's a history of ESBL in these patients. Or God forbid, it's something like CRE, carbipenem-resistant enterobaceae, where they're resistant to carbipenems. So, of course, that's not every hospital, that's not every patient, but you want to make sure you choose the appropriate antibiotics that starts broad, then narrow your spectrum. So that's going to be the first thing that we talk about. So what do you, what do you think about those pearls for antibiotics? Oh, uh, they're incredible. Like, honestly, I, I love the way you put them together. And, and, you know, I actually had a question about that. Now, mm-hmm. let's say, do you ever think about, okay, because this patient is what, 64 years old, um, do you ever just assume, let's go with the most common, uh, what sort of bug, I guess, would be most commonly uh, associated with uh, sepsis in this age group? Do you ever just think of it that way and just empirically treat the patient, then do more um, specific tests? Would you ever do it that way or no? No, no, no. And I think, number one, the minute we're even vaguely saying the word sepsis, this is going to be in the hospital. So I think I'm going to take your question and kind of rephrase it and say, Mm -hmm. let's say they're not septic. Let's say we're just talking about cystitis, uh, you know, your run-of-the-mill UTI, you know, I'm going to say you got to take it case by case. You know, there are a lot of people, our our parents, when our parents get older, it's not easy to just, hey, let's just go to the hospital. Let's just get a urinalysis. It's not that easy. You know what I mean? And sometimes for a lot of people and a lot of families who have kids, they go to work, they can't bring their parents to the hospital or to the you know, healthcare setting that, yes, you think about treating empirically. Now, the thing is, the, the downside of treating empirically is that not everything that looks and smells like a UTI is a UTI, right? I mean, exactly. <laughs> I got to tell you, how many, how many patients tell me, but the urine looks dirty. I'm like, okay, but it smells weird. Why are you smelling the urine? <laughs> you know, like, but the whole thing is you, know, you want to make sure that it's the right diagnosis because right. you do worry about needless antibiotics once they get a reaction to an antibiotic what about resistance 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 so you know yes you know in the outpatient setting it's a a communication with with the family with the patient about empirically treating common things being common a lot of uh uh when we think about enterococcus, you think about facium and fecalis, very common, you know, in the elderly. Of course, E. coli is going to be huge in the elderly. And, you know, the minute that you're going to get admitted to the hospital, you know, it just, it's just being an ICU doctor, nosocomial infections, even though 10% of hospital beds are only in the ICU, we just have the, you know, the most nosocomial infections. So if this is someone who's already in the hospital, 
has an indwelling catheter. Oh, you know, you got to take out the catheter, treat the bugs that are more of those hospital associated bugs, and they can be pretty bad. Right. So, yeah. I think you always have to stick in what clinical setting are you talking about. But definitely, if it's going to be someone who's septic and they get admitted to the hospital, I will start broad and then narrow my spectrum. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you for that. Now, this is, I guess, well, maybe not the million dollar question, mm-hmm. but this comes up so often. IV fluids and pressors. Let's talk about that for a moment, because I feel like this is such a big part of management when it comes to sepsis. And you kind of briefly touched on it at the beginning. And then, you know, uh, I, I just, I really need to, I really need to understand this portion. So do your, do your magic, Dr. Raj. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the minute you suspect sepsis, you know what I mean? The first thing you're going to do is, you know, source control and give those antibiotics. Then, of course, I mean, fluids. You know I mean, fluids is going to be so important. And people are always going to ask me, well, what fluid are you going to choose? And, you know, I'm going to say I'm going to make you read the book to get the, the dirty details. Or the no. good details. But, <laughs> but, you know me, I want to give you my, my little uh, spiel, which is, okay. you know, what kind of IV fluids do you want to use? You definitely want to use something that's isotonic, something that builds up the volume. And right now, the hottest topic in uh, in medicine is going to be using things that are a balanced electrolyte solution. Balanced electrolyte solution. Because you know what's not balanced is normal saline. And if you want to know one of Dr. Raj's pet peeves, don't call it normal saline because there's nothing normal about it. What I mean is that when we talk about the normal uh, serum sodium, and I think this is a good Eva question right here. (laughs) What what is the normal value of serum sodium if you had to pick a a rough estimate? Uh, I would say 136. Yeah, dude. Well, well said. Somewhere between that 135, 140-ish, right? If I were to ask you how much sodium is in normal saline, it's 154 milliequivalents. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And here's where, the party, here's where the party really begins. And when you have that much sodium, it needs to be balanced. So, of course, what binds to sodium? Chloride. And if I were to ask you how much chloride... Is in normal saline, the answer is 154 milliequivalents. So let me just take it up a notch. You know, Eva, what's the normal value of chloride in our, in our serum? Ooh, is it, is it uh, 100? Yeah, great answer. Great answer yeah. to 100. So if I'm giving you 154 milliequivalents of chloride, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It doesn't sound like a good thing. It doesn't sound a good thing because you know what happens is with all that chloride load, you know who hates chloride in our serum? I'll tell you who hates chloride, bicarb. They just, yeah, yeah, they're just don't like to hang out in the same place because they got the same charge. So you start loading up someone with chloride, guess what you're going to lose? Bicarb in the Mm -hmm. urine. You're going to develop what? A metabolic acidosis. In fact, you're going to get what's called a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. In fact, all that chloride load may even put the kidneys at a higher risk for damage. So 
You know, right now, what we're trying to do is, I know a lot of people are just so instinctive, you know, low blood pressure, normal ceiling, you know, but we really want to use more balanced electrolytes, things where the sodium and chloride are more balanced than what our natural electrolytes are in our serum. So I would say one of my favorite flavors to use right now is lactated ringers. There are other ones out there too. They have brand names like normal soul and all these things but like lactated ringers it's more balanced to what we naturally have so key thing is giving fluids if you and really if you give someone three four liters of fluid and the blood pressure is still low i gotta tell you it's probably not going to be hypovolemic shock you know what i mean because you yeah. already gave a lot of fluids what happens in like a distributive shock like a sepsis is that all that fluid goes to the third space so that's why their blood pressure stays low and there's a point where after you fluid resuscitate him, I mean, you can't make him a human jacuzzi forever. You know what I mean? They're going to start going to pulmonary edema and all these things. You got to start using what we call pressors. And I mean, in the book, we got some awesome charts and talks about pressors. But I will say the punchline is this. If it's distributive shock, it's sepsis, that there's one presser that I probably would start first, and that's going to be norepinephrine levofed. That's based upon clinical experience, based on evidence-based medicine, based upon sepsis guidelines, that we start probably levofed first. Now, levofed's a catecholamine. So, of course, it's not great to have lots and lots and lots of catecholamine, just kind of one after the other after the other. It has its side effects. So after, you know, I start Levofed, probably the second presser I would add to that is vasopressin. What's vasopressin? Well, you know, it's kind of like ADH, antidiuretic hormone. And when we talk about ADH, remember that it's not only about bringing in water or not bringing in water. It really has a presser effect. In fact, there are two main receptors, the V1 and V2 receptors. V1 tends to be on the arterioles. And when you give vasopressin, that it's going to be a very potent vasoconstrictor. So I probably would start off with uh, norepinephrine. As I'm going up and up and up and up on that dose, I'll probably initiate the vasopressin so I won't crank up the catecholamines that much. And I'm thinking this is good. I'm attacking it from catecholamines. I'm attacking it from uh, ADH. And sometimes if it's septic, 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 septic shock, there's a new presser out there called Giapreza. And that's the brand name. It's actually pooled angiotensin 2. And, you know, I got to tell you, it's not the cheapest presser to get, but I got FDA approval based upon people who have sepsis. And I really do feel when we talk about managing uh, septic shock, you want to attack it in many different ways. I want to attack it in catecholamines, ADH, maybe some angiotensin 2. And on top of that, remember everyone, angiotensin 2 really stimulates aldosterone, what does aldosterone do? It makes you bring back some sodium, water's gonna follow, and you kind of want that when you're in septic right. shock. Not mm -hmm. to mention that angiotensin II is a very potent vasoconstrictor, but there are many ways to do things. But I think choosing pressors is gonna be very important. By this time, patient's gonna have to have a central line because we have to give the pressors through a central line. If the blood pressure is low, I wanna go to accuracy and measuring the blood pressure, I'll probably put it in arterial line to get a really good uh, accurate, objective, uh, mean arterial pressure. So these are things that we do to kind of stabilize the patient. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And guys, if you, for some reason felt like 
that was so overwhelming with a lot of information. Don't worry. It's all <laughs> listed in yeah. his book. You can go through it on your own time and just kind of refresh your memory if, in case you need that. So there's a beautiful table I'm looking at right now. Um, and it tells you all the vasopressors you need to use in septic shock. And he has them lined, you know, first line agent, add-ons. I love this. I love what you did, Dr. Raj. This is incredible. Thanks. So, yeah. So thank you for answering all of those questions. I think the only other question I have really left to ask you is corticosteroids. Now, when I was reading this, you had mentioned that, you know, from my understanding, I thought we don't use corticosteroids in a case of sepsis. Am I correct? You know, am I missing? No, you're not missing anything. I think, let me, before I answer that question, let me just say, ICU medicine is kind of like a pendulum. So when you ask me a question, it depends, well, what year are you talking about? So one year we love steroids, next year we don't love steroids. Yeah. <laughs> so your your answer was probably correct at a certain year, you know. Yeah. So, you know, the, the whole thing is I'm glad you, you brought this up. So at the end of each case, we have what's called beyond the pearls, you know. And these are going to be things that... I mean, if you could ask this question in rounds when you're hanging out next to me or, or other attendings you just kind of love to be around, I'm going to be like, whoa, you're awesome for asking this or knowing that piece of information or getting those really tough questions on your board exams. So, you know, the reason why we give steroids is because of the fact that a lot of these patients who are in full-on septic shock, that they could be adrenally insufficient. And, you know, when you have Adrenal insufficiency, uh-oh, that blood pressure is going to be super low. You could really die from adrenal insufficiency, whether it's primary or secondary. But in general, just let me say that the adrenals may not be working the way it should. So what do we do? We give steroids. We give what's called stress dose steroid. Now, let me just say this. If you're already on steroids long term, you really need stress dose steroids. And also, once again, remember, when you give someone a lot of catecholamines like a norepinephrine, they have side effects. So Giving these steroids may help wean down some of the catecholamines itself. So the steroids are not helping the bacteria, the fungus, the virus, the, you know, the parasite. And I agreed, that's not what we're doing it for. We're doing it to help out with hemodynamics, to help out with presumed adrenal insufficiency. But I agree with you. Anytime someone is bacteremic or septic, I'm not super excited about giving those steroids, but that's the mentality behind it. And who knows when we do this podcast again in another year or two, <laughs> the pendulum will swing the other way. So great question. Right. Okay. Wow. I, you know what, I've learned more from you than I have, I feel like in the past year. So this was excellent. Thank you so much for teaching me all about sepsis today. Um, yeah, like I, I think that kind of concludes all the questions I had for you. Oh, well, hey, let me just do a little closing right here. Well, this is fun. This was kind of like our first time doing this for the Beyond the Pearls podcast, promoting my new book. Now, this is going to be case number 63. The book's coming out going to be in August of 2022. I'm so excited. And hey, Eva, thanks for being here. And I'll see you on the next podcast. How's that sound? Oh, that that's going to be even more fun, right? Because we have so <laughs> many more things to talk about. So yes, thank you so much, Dr. Raj. Can't wait to do more cases with you. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. 
This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.